Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. I'm back today with Dave Dowling, crop guru that helped us last season with a great episode all about tulips. This time, I'm picking Dave's brain about ranunculus. Many of us in the Northern Hemisphere are harvesting ranunculus right now. And we need to get our quarters in soon for next year's corms. Those of you in the southern hemisphere are probably about to soak and pre-sprout your corms. So this seemed like a rather timely episode. <laughs> a member of the buttercup family, the ranunculus we flower farmers grow are hybrids of ranunculus asiaticus, which is a native to places like Turkey, Syria, and Greece. It prefers cool weather but cannot handle deep freezes. Ranunculus are happiest around 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 5 to 10 degrees Celsius. They really start to protest when soil temperatures go above 60, 65 Fahrenheit or around 15 Celsius. There's not a lot you can do to stop ranunculus from flagging and eventually going dormant once the temperatures soar. Here in Philadelphia, where I farm, we regularly hit 0 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 17 Celsius in the winter and then quickly climb to the upper 70s in early spring. If you don't have a heated greenhouse or live in a Mediterranean climate, it takes a lot of fancy footwork and some tunnel space to make ranunculus a viable crop. Some years they're a complete bust, some years they're amazing. It really all depends on the weather. Ranunculus are also very susceptible to disease. I've had to move to growing in crates this year because of the disease pressure that had built up in my tunnel beds after many years of growing ranunculus. You'll hear more about that in my chat here with Dave. For the record, I'm not sold on crate production, and I'm eager to get back to growing in the ground in my new greenhouse next year. Why do we even bother with these fussy divas? Because there's nothing quite like ranunculus for wedding work in the spring, and their vase life is extraordinary, so it's a good way to cultivate a loyal following of retail customers. Because of that, it's best to learn all that you can about what makes ranunculus happy so you'll have the greatest chance for success with this crop. I've linked to a couple cultural sheets in the show notes for you. If you want to share tips and ideas about growing ranunculus and other tricky crops regeneratively, consider joining the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network. Find it at regenerativeflowerfarmersnetwork.org. A vibrant community hub for the ever-curious flower farmer, this new network helps make connections, starts conversations, and serves as a repository for a curated collection of articles and studies on regenerative practices. Membership in the network also goes to support the making of more podcast episodes here on No-Till Flowers. Dave will join us for a live Q&A on the network later this season to answer more of your questions. Speaking of ways to interact beyond just listening to this podcast, I'm hosting a No-Till Flowers Field Day at my farm in Philadelphia on April 16th. I'll also have a couple more later in the season. If you wish this podcast could be a real-life experience, this event is for you. We'll get nerdy together and look at my farm up close to talk in detail about a number of regenerative growing practices. I'm including a link to register here in the show notes. I would absolutely love to have you join me. All right, here is Dave. Dave. 
All right, today I'm bringing back Dave Dowling to talk about Ranunculus because he was so awesome at coaching us all through the best practices for tulips. So welcome back to the podcast, Dave. You are a fan favorite for sure. <laughs> Thanks. It's great to be back. Awesome. <laughs> Happy to join you. <laughs> good, good, good. You have so much knowledge in your head, and I thought it'd be great to pick your brain about Ranunculus because I know you've grown them a lot at your flower farm, mm -hmm. and now you're a sales um, rep and, and expert on all things uh, bulbs, corms, etc. So can you tell us, flower farmers who are currently in the thick of their springtime with Ranunculus, some of the best practices to do as growers, starting with, let's just start from the very beginning. So let's talk about when you get those corms from the supplier, what are you going to do with them? What's what's the best thing to do? Well, two things. I recommend that when you order them, order them to get them shipped to you early in the season. Um, even if you're in a northern grower, not going to plant them until January or February because you can't plant earlier than that, get them shipped to you in the fall. Um, it just it gets them out of the way of all the tulips and everything else in the fall warehouse. And then also, if you're not the last order going out the door, there's less chance that something went wrong and you're going to get left out of some of the stuff you ordered. So always get, get some shipped to you, I always like to say, August and September. Um, it just makes it easier for the supplier, too, because then they're, they're done with their ranunculus season before they get buried in tulips and daffodils and everything else. Um, but when they arrive on your farm, even if you're not planting them until later, store them warm and dry. Just hmm. They're going to come usually in a mesh bag or a paper bag. They don't go in the cooler. They don't want to get them damp. Just put them on the shelf in the office, on the shelf in your living room, just open the box and that's all you have to do. Yeah, I remember um, the first, out. first time I got corms and I stored them, I was like, wait, I'm supposed to just let them sit like basically in the hottest <laughs> just place? <laughs> yeah. it, it's no different than like you, you know, keep a seeds, you know, they just hold like that. So you just leave them sitting on the box and the, or the bag on your, usually come in a little mesh bag or even like a little paper lunch bag and just sit them someplace warm and dry. Okay. Um, then when you're ready to start to grow them, that's when you got to start doing the right things so that they rehydrate and grow correctly. Um, the biggest thing is you, when you rehydrate them, think of it like a cooking pasta, you know, the little dried up macaroni looks shriveled up and dried. As soon as you <laughs> cook it, it gets big and plop. You know, That's looks a very great different analogy. Plump. I love that. <laughs> but I, I remember the very first time I'm talking 25 years ago, the first time I grew up like this, I was going to do just a few to, out of my batch and I put them in a styrofoam coffee cup and added water. Well, that cup exploded because they expanded so much. Oh, wow. You know, just because they, they, they grow that much, so to speak, when they rehydrate. So you want to rehydrate them, usually for a couple hours. You'll see they look totally different. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is you want the water running so the water's fresh. And then I also like to, once you're finished, so come rinse them off with clean water. Even though you've had water running through that bucket of the ones usually in a mesh bag or just loosen the bucket, when you do take them out, rinse them off with fresh, fresh water. Oh, okay. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, which, I, I just yeah, like take I just them like straight out. Yeah, I never thought to yeah, rinse them. Because... Even though you've had the water running on it, it's still, there's dirt in there. It's just and sort of like bacteria, bacterial, of yeah, yeah. Yep. And so how it's long like are you... like if you one bad apple, it's not going to spread. Right. Um, how long do you soak them for, do you recommend? I, I like either two to three hours. Mm -hmm. Some people say mm -hmm. overnight, but yeah. to me, once they're puffed up, they're ready to come out of there. Yeah. There's no reason to leave them longer than that for the uh, ranunculus. Yeah. And then your next question is, how are you going to pre-sprout them? Because you don't want to <laughs> go and then plant them right in your bed. Because just like seeds, they're not all going to grow. You might have 100 and there might be 95 grow. So you don't want to have those five empty spots in your bed, especially if it's in a tunnel because your uh, tunnel space is expensive real estate. You mm -hmm. always want to keep the beds full. So then you have to decide how you're going to sprout them. There's a couple ways you can do it. You can either, uh, usually in a 50-cell tray, where you can just plant them in there with some potting soil, water them once really good, put them someplace at the 50-degree range, someplace cool. 
Um, it can be as low as 40, just at 40, they're gonna grow a little bit slower. You definitely don't want it to be 60 degrees. You would never mm -hmm. put it on a heat mat or under lights. They don't need lights yet. Um, Cause at 60 degrees, they think it's summertime, they wanna go dormant and mm -hmm. they're not gonna grow. So they're not gonna sprout. So that begs a um, real so quick you... question, just so for anybody who's really new to ranunculus, I think it's worth saying these are, um, they're native to the Mediterranean. Is that right? Am I getting... Mediterranean, yes. So mm -hmm. they don't like yeah. extreme conditions. They like in that like, perfect Mediterranean springtime, which is like 40 degrees, 50 degrees, but right. they really hate heat and they don't, they can survive they some like cold, the but they definitely don't like the heat. So that's, that's right. important to note. I like to say they like pansy weather because if you ever mm. grow pansies in the garden, they look good until early June. They fizzle a lot because it gets too hot and they'll survive the winter if it's a mild winter, like zone six or warmer. So they're almost the same same growing conditions that they need. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're either going to start them in the plug tray like that, or you can take a bulb crate or just an open flat, put soil and lay them out on there, just bury them lightly and water them on there, keep them at 50 degrees. Or you can take and you've soaked them in the mesh bag or in the, uh, just loosen the bucket, take them out. And then put them in a mesh bag and put them in a cooler somewhere that 40 to 50 degrees and they'll sprout like that. Uh, you can add perlite to the bag, just slightly damp. But I know that the Yarnaskis in Texas, they just put the, the mesh bag right in the cooler as it is. Mm -hmm. no, no perlite or anything. And then they, as soon as they've sprouted, they start to plant them out in the field into so, their beds. Okay. Let me ask you if you have an opinion, because I've heard all these different methods. And right. I've kind of tried. And they all work. <laughs> they all work. And I've tried a couple of different ones over the course of my career as a flower farmer. So I was originally a soak them, then lay them out in kind of like a lasagna style. Um, like I, I had an open flat and I would put some soil mm -hmm. down, then lay some corms, then do some more soil, then lay some corms and do some more soil and kind of just like, you know, they were just like a mishmash. I waited until I saw um, roots and then we would pop them in the ground. So basically I did nothing to try to get growth on top of them during the pre-sprouting process. I was just looking to wake them up and see little root hairs. But now roots, I've right. shifted to potting them up into um, the ones I'm using are a 30 cell tray, like a deep 30 cell rose tray. Mm -hmm. Um and letting them actually grow and develop like a root system and like 10 leaves or whatever, um, and then putting them into the ground. And I've found the plants are a lot more vigorous, but then the trade-off is that I have to spend a lot of time with that process of, you know, taking the corms, putting them in trays, growing them on, then planting them out. So it's a lot more labor and I'm trying to debate the trade-off here. So do you, do you, do you, do you yeah. think one's better than the other? I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> it's not one's better than the other. Like the Aronofsky's in Texas grow them by the tens of thousands. Right. They right. can't be putting them in plug trays to start mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. uh, one advantage of the plug trays is you can get them like you're doing in your trays and they don't have to go in the spaces in the tunnel yet. Mm -hmm. They can still have your lysianthus that's doing the second flush of flowers. Yep. And when that's finished in late October, then you rip out the lysianthus and then you put in your a bigger plant as opposed to waiting to put in just the corm in late October. Yeah. So that's the advantage of doing the pre-sprouting a person growing a plant and you can grow it in that plug tray for a long weeks time. And weeks. Yeah. It's I think I've time. had them yes. like, uh, Six, over, two, so yeah, over two months that yeah. if they've hung out like a long that. Time. Yeah. So that's the advantage of doing a sprouting with a plug tray like that, that you have a basically a big plant to plant out mm -hmm. and yeah. you can then, it doesn't take up a bed space when something else may be in that bed space in the tunnel. So that's one advantage of doing that. But you wouldn't do that if you're growing yeah. 5,000 of them. Lots of volume. Just, yeah. That would fill a greenhouse with the plug trays. Right. Um, so eat both ways work. Yeah. Cool. You know, it all depends curious. on what works for you. Yeah. What the system yeah. is. It's always all about context as to which which system right. is best for, the, for everybody. Right. 
where the thing you don't want to do is just get the dry corms out of the paper bag and plant them right in the field, right in the bed and water them because then they're you're going to have a bunch of empty spots on your bed mm -hmm. and just some might not make it and you're wasting space. Yeah. So when you do go to plant them, what's the best practices in terms of, so you've planted them, they're pre-sprouted, whether they're super growing or just like awake. Um, do you want to keep the bed moist once they've gone in? Do you want to let the bed be sort of dry until you see robust growth? Like what's the, what's the watering strategy when they first go in the ground? Right. Either way of planting, whether you're planting a transplanted plant that's growing or just a barely sprouted corm, you want to water them really good one time. And that's just get it really wet so it settles the soil down around the roots. And then if you're planting the corms that don't have many leaves and they just have a few roots, no more water until they're up and growing and need water and can use it. Okay. So you don't want to go in there and water every three or four days like you do if you're trying to get seeds to germinate. That would be too wet. But once you have a plant that's leafy and green and lots of leaves to use that water, you need to water more often. Okay. So if you have them in the tunnel over the winter, it also depends on where you're at. If you're zone six and your winters are cold and they're not really growing much over the winter, just they're growing a few roots, but there's not a lot of leaf growth, you don't need to water much. But if you're in zone eight down in the Carolinas or Georgia, you would need to water throughout the winter because they actually have a big bushy plant that is using water and you don't want them to dry out and wilt. Right. I find that I struggle with mine a lot with potential rot from what I, I know some, we'll talk about soil borne diseases in a minute, but, um, <laughs> but I think it can also sometimes be that I'm keeping them too wet. And I, I, is it just me or are ranunculus actually really fussy about moisture levels? Like, I feel like I struggle with this. <laughs> you don't want to give them too much water when they're young, but once they're big, they need water. When they're starting to bloom and have buds showing, you need to give them enough water so they mm -hmm. can grow the taller stems and the nice big flowers. I know the uh, supplier that Edney gets theirs from the, out of France, um, I've seen videos of their tunnels before in full bloom where they're doing it for the breeding to make the mm -hmm. seeds, but mm -hmm. they say that most people don't water them enough once they're okay. up and growing. Okay. All right. So, But the important thing is the type of soil you have. Your soil yeah. should be you know, well-draining soil, usually a raised bed in the tunnel. So it's almost impossible to overwater them once they have lots of leaves and roots to use that water. Okay. That's good to know. Cause I, I always have that in the back of my brain. Like maybe I'm yeah. just overwatering them, but I think it really is a lot more to do with soil borne diseases that I've struggled with over the years. Yeah. So uh, why don't we talk about that real quick? Because it kind of leads into another question that I had for you. So I've been growing ranunculus for over a decade now. I can't really remember how many years, probably more like 12 years. And uh, when I first started, they were planted in the field under low caterpillar tunnels. Um, and because I didn't have a hoop house. And then once I got a hoop house, I decided to put them in the hoop house because obviously that's going to be a much better location for them. But then I was growing them in the same hoop house for years. And I started to have soil disease buildups that meant that just over time, um, I was just losing like 80% of my corms to rot mm -hmm. at a certain point. Can't do that. Right. And I can't do that. <laughs> so <laughs> this year, or well, really in the fall, I put them in crates for the first time because mm -hmm. I was out of options. I was like, I don't, I've used every single bed in my hoop house. I don't know what else to do. I'm going to just try crates. And now I'm struggling with crates. So can you tell us what might be a good practices for crates? Because I get this question a lot from listeners too, in general, like, let's talk about ranunculus in crates. Look, yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. Well, one thing in crates, you got to remember, you, you don't want to plant too many in the crate. Mm -hmm. So a crate is usually about two and a half square feet. Mm -hmm. And regular ranunculus, you plant four per square foot. So that means you only put 10 in a crate. Okay. I have mine at full. eight. I only have eight in them. Eight, so, so you're okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So eight's good. You're yeah. not too crowded. Just sometimes you see there's a little corm, you think, oh, I'll put 20 in there. Mm -hmm. And that's just the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Um, the other thing you're most likely using 
fresh new potting soil to grow them yep. in. Mm -hmm. Yep, ProMix Organic um, is what is I did for this one. Yep. yep, that works fine. The other thing to remember that when you have something growing in a crate, you usually need to water it more often mm -hmm. once it's up and growing, whether you're growing ranunculus or lilies or tulips, just because that crate only holds so much water and the roots can't go down to the ground deeper looking for water and no water is going to uh, move from the, in other words, they, so to speak, drink the water where the roots are, but no mm -hmm. water is going to move in from the okay. aisle because yeah. there's a plastic wall around it. So right. you've got to water more often in the crates. Okay. And I think it's a lot of times people don't do enough of that. I think that's what I'm probably doing. Like I water, I feel yeah. like almost every day, but I'm still struggling with it. So I'm like, ah, I got to ask somebody else about crate management. And then do you yeah. have to do more nutrition management in crates because they're going to, well, they're heavy feeders. Well, I would say, yeah, they're heavy feeders. And if you're buying potting soil, there's not much fertilizer in mm -hmm. there. Sometimes there's a little teeny bit. You got to do something and whether using a commercial fertilizer or a organic fertilizer, you have to do something mm -hmm. for fertilizer when you're growing in crates. You need to do it in ground beds too, but definitely in crates. Okay. And so, that's up to every grower what they like to use. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some people are in, you know, the fish emulsions, some people buy the, the commercial fertilizer. It all right. depends on what your growing methods are. Yeah. I'm not going to sway you either way. <laughs> <laughs> Remember your audience. This is the No-Till Flowers right, podcast. Is, it's, it's, a first, it's your personal decision, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. They all, they all work if you do them right. Yeah, exactly. So before we leave crate land here, so to speak, do you feel having, you know, advised lots of growers and lots of different places and methods and contexts, do you think that crate growing is a valid option for ranunculus? Is that like a real way yes. to successfully grow them? Yeah. Okay. You, you can definitely grow them in crates. The only thing to remember is you have to remember the cost of that soil. I mean, the right. crates are a long-term investment. You have them forever, but they're packed. The soil is going to cost you six, $7 per crate. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if you got, you know, that's costing 50 cents a plant in soil. So you got to remember that when you're selling your flowers, you might have to charge an extra, plan on charging an extra nickel or dime or something to cover the salt cost mm -hmm. of the soil. Mm -hmm. But so, it definitely works. I know many growers that grow them in crates. Okay, that's good to yeah. know. Do you know if there's something we could add to crates for those of us that might continue to try growing in crates? <laughs> uh, <laughs> is there something to add into the soil mix that might be helpful, like compost or adding oh, something else? Or it's if you're, best to stick if you with mix, just, you know. Well, the pro mix is always good because it's clean. Yeah. So you shouldn't have right. any disease caused by the right. soil. You can always add some uh, compost to it. Um, the other thing I was thinking is if you were to use a root shield or something like that, mm -hmm. When you're planting them, right. which is the micro, okay. I can never say micro. Mycorrhizal stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which we would do in crates or in the ground anyway. At, in the ground, at least right. my farm. So it's helpful. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which we'll we'll talk about that. We're not going to bypass that. But before I okay. also um, leave our current topic, uh, let's talk about nutrition in general in terms of whether they're in the crate or whether they're not. Ranunculus, I remember reading a um, you know, like a white sheet study on ranunculus from Italy or somewhere at one point and being shocked at the quantity of nitrogen that they said that, that ranunculus need. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, I've never given my ranunculus anything yeah. like that. So can you tell they us need, what's good good in that capacity? Yeah, they didn't need the nitrogen fertilizer to get them growing, which because you have a lot of leaves coming out of that little teeny section mm -hmm. of root, mm -hmm. um, you know, the corn that you planted. So you definitely need to use the nitrogen, but then also once they have the buds starting to form, then you want to switch over and have a little bit lower nitrogen and more phosphorus, just mm -hmm. because the phosphorus is better for the flowers. And if you're growing in a crate, there basically there's none of that in the soil to begin with. Mm -hmm. If you're in the growing in the ground, you really should do a soil test to know what's already there. Right. So you're not putting too much. Right. But yeah, generally they are, I think, 
heavier feeders than most of us think they yeah. are initially. So I'd encourage listeners yeah. to go look up, um, you know, one of the sheets, you know, the cultural sheets from a supplier mm -hmm. and, and see what they are. Maybe I can even find a link to one that I can include in the show notes. Yeah, you probably hopefully. could. Yeah. The other thing I always like to point about fertilizer, if you are using an organic fertilizer, like fish emulsion or something like that, it's usually a very weak solution. Mm. And you can't just do that when you plant. You got to keep doing it throughout the season. Mm. You know? Yeah, good point. You know, because it, you can't just fertilize once and when you plant them in October and expect it to still be good in March. You have yeah. to do it again yeah. throughout the growing season. Yeah, I, I spray, I do foliar feeds on mine and I foliar feed once a week um, with right. just to make sure that they've got something going on. And every time I spray, they green up, you know, like they'll start to look tired. <laughs> and then I do the yeah. feed and then they're like, ooh, hey, we're back. <laughs> so... <laughs> Give me that. Give me some lunch. I'm happy. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I should probably feed them a little more right now. They're growing so robustly. So this is another question I had for you. I noticed through the different cultivars um, that I've grown over the years, some have a lot of foliage and then other ones have like no foliage. And you're like, are you going to even make anything? And is that a sign of health or that's just certain cultivars are like, it's just, you know. just the different varieties grow different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any yep. suggestions on cultivars in terms of for newer growers who are just starting out? Is there a particular like Amandine or sorry? Yeah. Amandine? No, that's an enemy. Amandine is a variety. Yes. Sorry, <laughs> I had a brain fart where it's like, so Amandine or, um, uh, you know, any well, of the, the Italians or any suggestions? Right. Yeah. Well, the ranunculus are, are basically produced different ways. You're buying a, a dried up root that's produced different ways. The Labelle and Amandine that are available from Edney through fall, those are ones that are started from hybrid seeds. So they start the seed, grow it for season, dig it in the summer and sell you that root in the fall. If you get the ones that are tissue culture, which Edney does carry some of those, they call them clone. The Italian ones call them clone-y, but it's, they're both grown from tissue culture. They cost a lot more. But those are done with tissue culture in lab. They grow them out as a plant. It grows the root. They dig up the root and sell you the root. But it's two different ways to produce that root, either from seed or from tissue culture. Um, so both... When you have that root in your hand, it looks the same, but it's one's grown with the tissue culture as an exact clone of the parent plant, where the others are hybrid seeds that are, a, you know, a offspring, a hybrid, but it's not always exactly the same. Um, but that's how they make the root that you buy. The price difference is about 50 to 60 cents for the ones that are not tissue culture and around $2 each for the tissue culture ones. Um, people will balk at the $2, but if you consider the plant's going to put up half a dozen stems, that extra dollar uh, fifty you're paying is thirty cents a stem. So if you can charge an extra three dollars a bunch for your uh, ranunculus as the hybrid, you know the tissue culture type, you're going to make the same amount of money, but you should be able to charge five dollars more a stem, at least fifty cents more a stem, five dollars a bunch for the Italian or the clone because they're bigger, better plant, bigger, better flower. Yeah, and that so the... it's just hard on the pocketbook when you place in the order. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and knowing that the one comes from hybrid seed and the other is coming from tissue culture explains the cost difference because tissue the culture is yep. very time consuming to do. I did some one time when I yeah. used to work at Longwood Gardens and it just sit there forever in the lab digging forever. out the meristem <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, this takes forever. So, um, yeah. but. As a, you know, I know that you sell corms and you're heavily involved in the trade. Do you think that 
I understand the, you know, the economics of it, but in terms of the vigor of the plant, do you think the clones are more vigorous and more likely to be a healthy plant or are the hybrid seed, you know, labels and almondine yeah. just as good? The reason that they do the tissue culture on the varieties that they do it with is because they're a better plant. In other words, they've done the hybrid seed, they found a plant that was a much big, bigger, better plant, so then they hybridized that one. So you are should be getting a better producing plant from the mm. uh, tissue culture, the more expensive ones. Usually larger flowers, more robust plant, thicker stems. So there is a difference. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. I struggle sometimes with just, um, I want certain colors and, you know, like as a wedding florist, like I find, you know, like Hanoi is all, all I can ever dream of as a wedding florist. Because <laughs> so, those are all those colors, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So I do tend to go more towards the clones so that I can be sure I'm getting just what I want. But I, for the record, I, for years before the clones came along, I grew LaBelle and loved LaBelle and really love, you know, the salmon um, and champagne colors there too. So. So they're great as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, an interesting thing with the Labelle and Amandine, they come from a company in France, and they're not doing any more breeding on the Labelle. So they're not developing any new colors in the Labelle series. But in the Amandine, they're producing new ones all the time and trialing new crosses to come up with new mm -hmm. ones. But they stopped doing the breeding with the Labelle just because they feel that the Amandine is better. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So, so all right. So if you look in the catalog, there's like eight eight or nine uh, Labelle colors and, you know, 15 Amandine, and they add new Amandine. Plus, they started last year having ones they call half clone, hmm. where it means one of the parent plants is a clone, and the other one is a seed produced variety, hmm. but it sells for the seed produced variety price. So it's the same price as the Amandine, but one parent is a clone. So it's, there's like four varieties, four colors of that. Oh, wow. And what series is that clone. the Amandine series, or that's a new, no, a new it, series? It's a new series they call Half Clone. Oh, they just call it Half Clone. <laughs> okay. They call it Half Clone. Right. So one, one, one parent is a clone. Then that's you know like one step up from a regular Amandine, but not quite a full clone. Hmm. It's in between, and but at the lower price. And can where does one purchase such a thing, since I, so, this is new to me? Eddie <laughs> imports those from France, and they're sold through Ball. OK, all so, right, yeah. cool. Fantastic. Oh, this begs a really good question then. So when's the right time to order your corms? Like we talked about when you get them in, what do you do? But should we all be ordering right. them like now, today? We're, we're recording this it. in mid-March, which, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> too late. <laughs> um, the general rule for bulb crops and ranunculus is the bulb crop basically is you want to order when they're blooming. When your tulips are blooming in April, it's time to think about tulips for planting in the mm -hmm. fall. Same thing with ranunculus. Pick a ranunculus in April and May, it's time to be ordering them. Um, some of the more popular colors sell out, so you don't don't sleep, <laughs> don't, don't wait. <laughs> you know, don't wait say, until July and Ooh. August to order because the good ones are gone. Yeah. Um, but ideally, you want to try and order in April, which okay. one people I think will be hearing this. So. Yeah, and I do think lately there's been such a rush. Um, Oh God, I, I I shouldn't go down this rabbit hole because I right. don't want to induce any anxiety in any <laughs> listeners, but it's just like, you know, people are already ordering tulips with abandon before the tulips are blooming this year, you know, and I right. the, I worry about the like sort of mad anxiety that it's building in our industry and hopefully right. everybody can take a deep breath and uh, <laughs> right. pace themselves. There, there's, there's lots of tulips out there, there's lots of ranunculus out there, it just might not be enough of 
of a certain color for all the thousands of customers mm -hmm. to buy it, mm -hmm. but there's always another color to buy. There's there never going to be none available. Right. There's always going to be some colors available. Right. And exactly, if you're new to growing ranunculus, we'll stick on ranunculus and not talk about tulips right now, okay. <laughs> but uh, to stick on ranunculus, if you're new to it, there's no sense in throwing a ton of money at this crop that is really new no. to you, or maybe you grew it just this year and you're about to harvest your first ones. Don't go buying something until you see what you already got. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's too many people throwing thousands of dollars at this <clears throat> crop, which is fussy right. and challenging, um, and it's good to just wait a little bit don't you think yeah yeah i i would never suggest somebody go out and buy a thousand dollars worth of ranunculus if they've never grown it before mm -hmm. grow a grow a hundred or two hundred um i think i think italian ranunculus doesn't know edney has uh mixes so if you don't know what color you want buy a mix and just practice growing it one year try mm -hmm. it make sure it works in your area in your greenhouse for your tunnel and how you're going to take care of it you yeah. know um Try it in your area first and for one season and see how that does before you spend, buy a whole bunch. And also make sure you have a place to sell it because, you know, a lot of places, the farmer's markers aren't open in April. Um, if you only have ranunculus to sell to your mm -hmm. florist customers, they might not want to deal with you if you only got two bunches to sell them or only yeah. one thing to sell them. So yeah. think about where and how you're selling it before you put a whole bunch of money and time into ranunculus. Yeah. It's a great crop, though. It, it is a great crop. crop. It definitely, and it, it's one of those ones that kind of... Um, if you can grow it well enough, it will get you really good. sort of um, really passionate customers. You know, like if you start yes. selling ranunculus retail to a local small community of, of happy, passionate flower lovers, they will just go gaga for your ranunculus. And that'll help you um, create the sense of you're a specialty cut flower grower, not just somebody growing zinnias. Mm -hmm. And not that there's anything wrong with zinnias, but it does elevate right. your, your ability, so to speak, in your customers' minds. The one thing that I did find when I was a newer grower and I was just starting to grow ranunculus and I didn't have that established of a market um, for that time of the year, I did make little short vases because my ranunculus were pretty short. I didn't know exactly what I was doing in terms of feeding and watering. Um, so little short vases will sell. And then the other thing that's really wonderful about ranunculus and one of the reasons I grow them so much is that they're fantastic for what we call personal work, where if you're doing floral design and you're making flowers for wrist corsages or boutonnieres and that kind of stuff. They're like my favorite thing for that. And so I actually started doing some like prom wrist corsages and prom boutonnieres and little prom posies uh, for a few years uh, just to have a good a, a, a market for those stems when they weren't at, you know, kind of florist grade stems right. <laughs> when I was a newer grower. Yeah. So that's a, that's a rabbit hole maybe some growers might want to explore. Yeah. And I was going to say, they look like a really fragile flower, mm. but they work for a corsage or a boutonniere. Oh, they're amazing. They hold up like nobody's yeah. business. And they dry really well, too, if you get to that point. But I usually sell them all fresh anyway. So, um, And a nice long vase light. Yeah, really long. If you're if you're picking yeah. your own, like the stuff that you might get from the store or whatever, if you've had ranunculus before, they don't last that long. But um, for me, they will hold in the cooler for several weeks, and then we can still pull them out and use them and get a great, you know, seven days base life off of them. So right. All right. Let me talk about, or let's us talk about. Um, Growing them in the field versus a high tunnel versus a heated tunnel. Like, do you have any tips for this? Like, as you know, people scale up and change their growing environment. Yeah, 
Well, most people would grow them in a high tunnel. That's the, to me the best place to put them because they like the cool weather in the fall and over the winter to get established, then push up flowers in the spring. You can grow them in a heated greenhouse and plant them. Once you're cool enough to plant them, you can't start them in August or September. It's too warm to try and grow them in most areas. But then you can grow them in a heated greenhouse as long as the greenhouse gets down to around 50 degrees at night. You can grow them in a heated greenhouse and then they're ready in about 12 weeks after you plant them. Hmm. So you can have a nice big crop just starting for Christmas, but a huge crop for Valentine's Day. And, you know, it's a replacement for the roses. <laughs> or if you're, you know, have a florist that's doing lots of Valentine's stuff to offer them something for the customers other than roses and other, the typical Valentine stuff. So the heated greenhouse can do that. They'll keep growing and blooming as long as you keep the temperatures in the low 50s at night. So they'll, ranunculus will keep growing until it gets too warm. And too warm is when the nights are above 60 and the soil gets above 60. One or two warm days aren't going to hurt them. It's when the soil gets too warm, it just it shuts them down because they think it's summertime. They want to go dormant. Because yeah. it is the plant that goes dormant in the summertime, totally gone. Yeah. Um, the, as far as growing them in the field, um, you are in zone six. When you did it out in the field under a tunnel, you can do that. I'd recommend in zone seven, maybe six is like kind of pushing it. Um, you can still do it in the outside tunnel. Um, the trick with the ranunculus is you don't want the ground to freeze. Mm. It's okay if the leaves freeze, but you want to try and keep the ground from freezing. Mm -hmm. um, but then going on the other end of the spectrum, when the um, plants are blooming in the spring and it's starting to get warm, it, whether it's a low tunnel or a high tunnel or a greenhouse, you want to make sure that is open at night as long as it's above freezing. Mm. So when you get those that weather in late March and early April when it's only going to be 45 degrees at night, don't think you have to go out and close up the tunnel and keep the ranunculus warm. Leave it open and let it cool off every night because the longer you can keep it cool and the longer you can keep that soil cool, the longer it'll keep growing and blooming for you. Yeah. The worst thing you do is forget to open and vent the tunnel on a sunny day in April and cook them for a couple of days and that's just going to shut them down and they're done. Um, so it's really important to open it up, leave it open 24 hours a day so you don't have to think about opening it in the morning. Or if it's getting down in the 20s at night, make sure you're out there by 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning to open it because on a sunny day in April, it can be 100 degrees in there and two hours of the sun shining. Yeah, that's what I struggled when I grew them in low tunnels outside. Right. I would go button them down at night because I was worried about it being too cold, but then I wouldn't necessarily get them open as fast in the morning as I should have. I mean, every once in a while, a girl wants to sleep in on a Sunday morning, you know? <laughs> so, right. And then I would, yeah, I just found I wasn't able to regulate the temperature well because in those low caterpillar tunnels, if it, you know, it gets really hot in those really if hot, they're sealed really up because there's only so much right. air in that space. So I find um, growing in a hoop house high tunnel, at least there's a little bit more forgiveness there and if you're smart you'll put automatic roll-up sides on your tunnel right. so they just go up without you right. having to get up early so yeah and i was i was gonna say one more thing if you are growing in an area that's kind of temperate like southern california southern texas and florida where you never really get really hard freezes over the winter you could grow them totally outside there's the area in california down there san diego the, the flower fields where they grow i don't know 50 mm. acres of ranunculus it's a tourist destination but it's also where they a lot of the cut flowers come from, but then they also sell the corms from those mm. as the tecalotes come from that field. Mm. Um, so if you are in a, in a fairly warm winter, a mild winter like zone nine, you could grow them outside. Okay. You still plan in the fall that over winter grow in the spring, right? <laughs> yeah, I hate you people that are. No, I'm just kidding. I, I wouldn't want to grow. But there are in people listening to. Nine. <laughs> there are, there are people listening that are down in you know yeah. the Florida and the Georgia oh, yeah, and stuff definitely. like that. So yeah, you don't need to take all these precautions. So. Um, right. 
great. Those are all fantastic tips. So let's talk now about disease and pest management. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've already confessed that I am struggling big time with soil-borne disease issues surrounding ranunculus and anemones seem to really come into those same beds because I wasn't able to crop rotate the way I should. So Mm -hmm. do you have any advice besides putting on, you know, root shield or something at the beginning and um, any other ways? Well, if you know you've had a disease problem in that bed before, don't plant that plant in there again until you've either changed the soil, which means dig it out and mm-hmm. put that in the field and bring some fresh soil in, or uh, you can soil solar sterilize it, solar solarization, where you're mm-hmm. going to basically close up the tunnel, put clear plastic or black plastic on the ground and cook it. And that means not growing anything at first season, but just to sterilize the soil to kill the pathogens. Um, so, so you're starting with a clean soil. Um, as far as insects, well, um, Disease, one more thing is you sometimes you get powdery mildew. Mm-hmm. But the other thing to remember is there are some ranunculus varieties that have splotchy looking leaves. Mm, yep. Every year I have somebody send me pictures that what's wrong with my ranunculus and that's nothing wrong with it. They just have splotchy looking leaves. Right. That's normal. Some are solid green and some look like somebody's they're sick. Yeah. That's just mm-hmm. the way ranunculus is. Um, so if it's the entire one variety has got splotchy leaves and the next one's green, don't worry about it. Right. Um, but the only other disease to usually get would be powdery mildew. Occasionally, botrytis, if you have water dripping off your ceiling at night, which is never good. You want mm-hmm. to have the leaves dry. Um, and then insects, aphids are the biggest thing, which you should always be watching for aphids. Um, organic control for aphids is spraying with the uh, oil, you know, uh, neem oil or something oil. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Horticulture oil. Or you can do um, then you uh, integrated to, pest management with uh, ladybugs oh, I, IPM or is parasitic wops. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing with the IPM is you've got to have the the good bugs there before the bad bugs take over yeah uh, you, you know because once you've got an infestation of aphids you can't find enough yeah. ladybugs to take care of them right. you just can't yeah so I it's do a have, pre- I preventative have, measure it is preventative and i do have good success with aphid management for my crops um with uh both releases of ladybugs and then the parasitoid wasps so i do i start right. doing that i release ladybugs when i feel bad they basically are doomed to die because i release them before it's too cold like it's still too cold and there's no aphids around and i acknowledge that they're sort of a sacrifice but the goal is that hopefully they will lay some eggs and then by the time it it, you know because those aphids they come out like they come out in you know late february on the first warm 70 degree day and suddenly you've got aphids so the goal you don't have just two or three (laughs) there's like thousands yeah thousands because they have that flush where they come off the grass they're overwintering in the grass and then they come in and so i like to just have some ladybug you know standbys ready and waiting ready to wait and then we do two more releases through the springtime just to make sure there's lots of population there. And then the parasitic wasps, parasitoid wasps have really, um, I released them uh, maybe two or three times at various times. And now they've really kind of just, they're there. And it, they're one of my best, you know, best friends in terms of high tunnel yeah. production because they're just always around and they're always um, doing their job. And it's super cool to see those little mummified aphid bodies. I'm always like, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I was going to say, um, the insects, uh, the beneficial insects is a whole other podcast for you. Oh, yeah. You oh, need to find I should somebody. Do that. If you haven't You're done right. it yet, that would be a great one to do. Okay. Because um, it's amazing how many bedding plant places. Mm-hmm. Now, if sometimes you buy a plant, whether you're buying it at Home Depot or the garden center, there's a little packet in there, like a little mm-hmm. tea bag. And that's where they release the beneficials in the greenhouses and the growing process that just goes along through the yeah. supply chain until it gets to the end user. But it's 
amazing how many places are using that because it works. It works and, and it's you know, and it's cheaper it if you do it right and you yes. have the right IPM specialist working on the job um, or consultant if you have to. It's amazing how much more effective mm -hmm. it well not not necessarily more effective than the sprays, but it's it's but um, as effective as, as effective and then cheaper because you know the sprays right. are a lot of money and who wants to spray anyway? So right. yeah, <laughs> for lots so of hassle many too. reasons. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, cool. All right. So what what do we know? Oh, I know one question I had for you was uh, as a grower who grew ranunculus, regular ranunculus for a long time, and then butterfly ranunculus came on the scene a few years ago. Uh, yeah. I find them so different than regular ranunculus. Do you, is that just me, or do you think they you treat them no. different? You know, like what what butterfly, do you got? Yeah, butterfly ranunculus are totally different. They were I don't know bred or created by some breeders in uh, Japan. Okay. And then they're now produced by a company in uh, Holland that actually does them again, the tissue culture. Mm. So they grow from tissue culture to grow out the roots. So in other words, the roots they're selling this fall were started last year as tissue, tissue culture. Wow. So it's really hard for them to ramp up production and say, oh, this is the new hot color. We thought 100,000 was enough, but really needed 300,000. It's going to take another year and a half or two years to ramp up those numbers. Um, but they're done from tissue culture. They're a much bigger corm. Um, I would say probably four times as big. They would not fit in a 50 cell tray. No, they're they would be a tight fit in a 36 cell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, they also take a lot more space in the in the bed. Mm -hmm. So those are planted one per square foot, whereas regular ranunculus are four per square foot. So it takes up four times as much space. Um, very different plant. It branches. It has a spray of flowers. The flowers are waxy. Um, it just and they're um, single and semi double. It's not the big round ball mm -hmm. like a regular ranunculus. Um, to me, the only thing that makes it look like ranunculus is the root looks the same shape before <laughs> right. you plant it. It's a Because the, the plant is different. <laughs> it's a totally different growth habit. Um, but it's an amazing plant. Uh, vase life, two weeks, mm -hmm. um, does really well. Again, though, it's because it's tissue culture, they're around $2 a plant for a root to grow them. Um, so as, as long as you can charge for that much for the stem, you know, and make a profit on it, it's great, a great plant to grow. Because it's the kind of thing that people will buy from you and come back and want it again. So I find that the butterfly ranunculus are a lot taller too, so they're great to mix into bouquets. Whereas sometimes the um, regular ranunculus can only be like eighteen inches tall, so it can be a little challenging right. to put those in mixed bouquets. So I like I like the butterfly for that. Um, yeah, the butterfly can be really tall. I've seen pictures of them growing in Holland where they're like four feet tall. Oh my Amazingly gosh. tall plants. <laughs> If you go to the the producer of the corms from Holland, their website without the really good detailed growing information, they're huge plants and very productive. Wow. So I do struggle with them seeming less cold hardy. Do you think that's true? You mean cold hardy over the winter when yeah, they're yeah, like growing them. Growing Sorry, them. not not like in the, you know, vase or whatever, but not in the spring, right. Yeah. Um they say they're the same, mm. that they can take the same. Although if you're zone six, I would probably have an extra tunnel over them in the, in the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Like it's in a yeah, high tunnel with a low everything. tunnel over them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
I've started yeah, just, then... I used to plant them in the fall and I found I was losing them or felt like I was losing them to cold. There is a chance that I thought they died, but the corm itself was still alive and it would have come back, but the top growth all died off. Um, so now I've taken to doing that trick where I'm pre-sprouting them in a deep cell tray, keeping them mm -hmm. under lights in a germination or in a grow room where I can keep them um, happier for a little while. So I'm starting them in December and then I'm able to wait to plant them into the hoop house until um, I guess late February. And right. I'm finding I'm not getting as much dieback that way at least. So I okay. don't know. They just seem fussier to me, but it could just be me. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've, I know people who have grown them and didn't like them for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and other people who just like go crazy over them. So yeah. until you grow them yourself, I can't tell you whether you're going to like them or not. Yeah. As a designer, I find them really interesting in a different shape. And some of the colors mm -hmm. are really just like there's no other color like that. So I really appreciate them from a design standpoint. But I do find that their heads are pretty floppy and they're not nearly as versatile as a good old regular ranunculus in terms of like all right. the different things. So, yeah. Flop, floppy is a good word for them. They, the stems aren't real stiff and they kind of like group over sometimes that's yeah. just the way they do yeah they're kind of almost like a wildflower look but they're way too expensive for <laughs> to call a wildflower right? right oh man do you know if they're the same species they're the still like they're the same species as the regular I have, ones or not i, I have no idea what those japanese people yeah do when they they're also them. like hush 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 <laughs> someday i'll i'll get behind the scenes on that, that yeah, yeah almost anybody who does plant breeding doesn't tell you how to do it because then you'll try and do it yourself right exactly you know, each, each seed company keeps their secrets Right. And it, it takes forever to bring a plant to market. So there's a reason yes. to keep your Years. secrets. It's almost as bad as like patenting a medicine or something. So you got to right. you got to earn your your revenue back from that investment. So, um, all right, let's talk about stage of harvest. What's the best stage of harvest and then how to like handle them after you've harvested them to, to have the base, best base life. <laughs> OK, with the ranunculus, you want to wait to the sepals, the little green fingers that wrap around the bud. So those are separated. The bud should be at least halfway open. You don't want to wait till it's totally open because it's going to continue to open in the vase. Um, harvest them, then put them in a cooler. And like you said, you can hold them for a week in the cooler and bring them out and they're still good for seven days. If you sell them fresh the next day, they're going to last sometimes two weeks, mm -hmm. really long lasting. So they're good flower. Um, you can have problem, problems with the stems bending if you don't have the bucket full. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. They'll slide down the bucket and get crooked. Oh yeah. So it's good to either pick them into a narrow bucket or put them into vases if you don't have a lot of them. So they're kind of captive and can't slide down in the bucket and get a crooked stem. You, When you're harvesting, there's not many leaves to strip off. It's basically a stem with maybe one leaf that you can take off, which makes it an easy harvest. Um, and also you're not taking leaves off the plant. So it's not going to, um, the plant will still regenerate for next year if you want to save the corn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother discussion. Right. Well, <laughs> we might have to discuss that. But before we leave harvesting, we will. <laughs> <laughs> we will. Before we leave harvesting tips, though, I do find that as a designer, again, as a florist, I want those ranunculus more open for my design work. And so I tend to either harvest much later or if I'm picking in advance to harvest for a particular wedding and sort of like stockpiling them, because you can. Right. If, if farmer florists are listening, I will often stockpile ranunculus for like a big, you know, sometimes I book really big weddings and I'll stockpile them for almost a month if it's a certain color. You know, if right. I need white ranunculus, I'll just stockpile those puppies in the cooler. Um 
But if I'm designing, I want them to be more open. So I guess I'm I'm making the statement mostly if people are harvesting for florists, it might be worth asking your florist if they want them more open. Oh, they want them. Because one of the things I do know some of my florist friends will complain about the ranunculus they get from the wholesaler that comes in really tight and they're getting them for a wedding on Saturday and they just got them and now they just don't fluff up in time. Right. You know what I mean? So that's one advantage that a local farmer can have over a wholesaler is if you can basically custom pick for your for your um, designers to be able to give them fully open blooms if they need them for a wedding. So, right. yeah, it's always good to have that yeah. little marketing advantage. <laughs> right. It's, it's always, and good to know your market, what they expect and right. what they need. Right. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. if the if your florist is doing home deliveries, then they're going to want the tighter ones so that the customer gets the longest space life. But if they're an event designer, there's a really good chance they're going to love you for showing up with nice right. open blooms. Because they can't get big open ranunculus mm. from the wholesaler. Yeah, they would have to order them Never. like two weeks in advance and then let them sit there yeah. and hope that they open. So, um, all right. So let's do it. Let's talk about saving corms. I know you're not yep. supposed to on some varieties, so let's talk about the legalities right. and best practices and so right. on. If it is a patented variety, you're not supposed to save them without paying the royalty back to the patent holder. And the reason you pay the patent fee is so they can make more better plants for you in the future. And that's where, you know, that funds the research and the breeding programs. Um, but if you do want to save them, basically what you want to do is let the plant die back naturally, which usually happens in June. Um, when your soil gets too warm, the leaves will start to turn brown or yellow, and then they turn brown. Pull them up, shake off the dirt. You can wash off the dirt if it sticks, you know, if it doesn't come out clean. Um, let them dry and then just store them warm and dry. Um, mm. Someplace where there's no mice. Um, I've had people before who stored them in the barn and the mice found them. I've had people before that pulled them up and wasn't planning to save them. They would just throw them in a crate and left them in the end of the tunnel all summer. And then they found that they could plant them in October and they came back fine. So they don't mind a warm and dry for the summer. Um, it's just wait till they're totally dead or you know, almost dead before you take them out. You can't take them out, you know, you can't finish picking the second week of May and pull them up right away. You have to give them a few more weeks to regenerate the tuber or the root for next year. Yeah. Um, but just store them warm and dry and start the whole process over again in the fall. Okay. I do. I leave mine in the ground, um, cut them That's back and then seed over them with, uh, we just direct seed with celosia or zinnias or the two crops that we found work well because mm. I don't want to heavily water the bed through the summer. Right. So that's the one thing. So this, for the record, is only beds that are inside the hoop house. So they're not exposed to torrential rain. You know, I would never, I right. don't think I could get them to come back outside because they would outside. be, right. you know, rainy and wet. And in my climate here, if you're in like the high desert or whatever, you're probably going to be totally right. fine. But if, but if you're going to plant something over them, you want to plant something that has a smaller root mass mm -hmm. like you would never put sunflowers right because oh, it's yeah, so yeah. chunky and big right and you also want to then try and plant between where the ranunculus was you're not mm -hmm. planting right on top of them right then you probably don't pull those solution when they're done you probably cut them off yep we just cut them down at the right. base so it works out right. really well um yep. and we get you know multiple different crops in the same bed without disturbing the soil which is really what yeah. i'm trying to achieve so yeah and those ranunculus will when the soil gets cool in late september and october will start to grow when they come up and it's yep back to square one and you do it again. Yeah. But then, like you said, you got the same crop in the year after year and you start having a disease problem. So that's you eventually need to rotate. Problem. <laughs> yeah, that's where <laughs> yes. I went wrong. As I just was like, yeah. oh, great, I have these perennial ranunculus, which is great. So for the record, it 
you know, I don't regret it in that I wanted to not disturb the soil. It was easier. It reduced my cost, all of the things. So it, it was fine. I think perennializing a ranunculus is fine if you want to do it. But then be aware that after four or so years, you're going to start with some disease issues, right. which just kept building until I had to acknowledge it. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. <laughs> do you know anybody that keeps crate-grown ranunculus in the crates, just stacks those crates up the way you would lily bulbs, you know, basically, and then pulls them back out you and starts that. growing yep. them again. Okay. All right. Yep. Again, you want to make sure the soils, let them die back, cut mm -hmm. off the, the dead leaves, make the soils fairly dry, stack them someplace warm and dry, and grow them again in the fall. The only thing is because they're in the crates, probably in a barn or somewhere, they wouldn't sprout on their own in the fall, mm -hmm. whereas in the ground in the tunnel, they get moisture so they know it's time to grow. If right. they're dried up, even though it gets cold to 50, they're not going to grow until they get some moisture. But again, watch for mice. Right. They yeah. don't come and eat them. Yeah. But yeah, that would work fine. I had a, not, this is a, an, a funny side story, but I had a rat this year dig up my ranunculus out of the crates. So that's the first time I've ever uh, had any rodent issue with a ranunculus ever. Um, and I think it was partly because it's in crates <laughs> and it was like easy digging and they're like, woohoo, let's do it. <laughs> So, yeah, really easy digging that soft soil, right? Yeah, so I'm I'm still on the fence about this whole crate growing thing, and hopefully I can find a good spot to put them back in the ground because I do think they they probably fare better in the ground for me, um, or I need to learn a few more tricks, which this conversation it's, is good it's the for. Water and, it's, <laughs> it's the water and feed if they're growing in crates. You yeah. gotta watch that more than yeah. you do in the ground bed. Yeah, I think I, I think I need to figure out a way to give them a little bit more nitrogen earlier on. Mine are blooming now, so I've moved on from you know the the heavy nitrogen feeding. But I think that would be uh, something I would focus on next year if I'm growing in crates, mm -hmm. just to get that a little bit beefier, basically. So right. Um, Great. Uh, one other final question about holding your yes. ranunculus. Some people will ask me sometimes about storing ranunculus dry the way you would store peonies dry. And I have never attempted that. I don't know if that's a thing. I always say I don't think so. But do you know of anyone? I, I don't know if anyone doing it. I wouldn't try it basically because the flower petals are so thin mm -hmm. that they're going to dry out and not rehydrate them. Mm. I just wouldn't try it. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Great. Any other parting wisdom on ranunculus? Because you got so much uh, great knowledge in that noggin of yours. <laughs> no. Other, like I said, you know, if you've never grown them, try a small batch of them. And when you get that figured out, that how it works in your farm, then up the numbers and have that and grow lots of ranunculus because it's a great spring crop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. Um, do you talk about ranunculus in your online course that you do through the Gardener's Workshop? Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. That's included in that. Yes. Okay. Cool. And, and there's other corms. Again this July. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Talk about ranunculus, anemones, tulips, everything. Okay. Great. And that class. course is called what again? Remind us. <laughs> <laughs> um, bulbs, woodies, perennials, bulbs, woodies. And, well, I forget. <laughs> See, even bulbs, you don't perennials. <laughs> well, I got to get the words right. The order right. Bulbs, perennials, woodies, and more. Great. Awesome. And that's available through the Gardener's Workshop. Awesome. Gardener's Keep... Workshop. And it yeah. happens every July. Yeah. It's, it's a great it course. Um, I've looked through it. There's loads of information in there. So uh, thank you, Dave, for always being our guru. Our industry would be kind of uh, stuck in the mud without you. So I <laughs> appreciate all that you share with us all the time. Happy to do it. Always have to share information to help people do a better job of what they're doing. Well, that wraps up 
another energetic episode of No Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.